Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red, and we have an amazing guest today, economist Joanne Shaker. Hello, Joanne. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nizar. Hi, Ben. Hey. So tell us a bit about yourself before we start this. I'm currently a graduate student in history, but my claim to speaking about these things is that I actually studied economics, worked as an economist, I worked in uh, money markets trading, and one of my fields of concentration now is the legal history of money. You've been very involved in the whole debate about, especially with activist groups we've met there in, in a few meetings, right? About like whether to pay the debt or not, what like what kind of economic policies we need for the, for the upcoming period. And and this is going to be the second episode we do about basically this question of should we pay the, the euro bonds that are maturing soon? Should we pay public debt in general in Lebanon? How do we how do we approach this whole matter? And that's the main topic for this episode. But before that, let's like get over the news. Yeah, I, I was going to say like we've almost sort of become like the Lebanese economics podcast as of late <laughs> totally. recently. And, and, that, and this week is sort of like no different. And that, that's why we're so happy to have you, Joanne. But this week we saw something really interesting in, in that like the politics and the economics and the finances all sort of getting bound up together. Um, so we did have a little bit of sort of like pure politics this week. And then it sort of like slid into, well, what are we going to do about the financial crisis that's going on? Right. Yeah. So, so big news. Lebanon has a fully empowered government. As of Tuesday, we finally have after I think 105 days since uh, Saad Hariri resigned. Back on 29 October, we finally, on Tuesday, got a government with confidence in Parliament. Parliament actually met. They got past the protesters. Uh, They may have met quorum. (laughs) And they voted and they granted confidence to the government of uh, Hassan Diab. In that vote, it was only like 84 MPs uh, who attended, who were present for the vote, uh, 63 yeses, 20 noes, and one abstention. And, and that was more than enough to, uh, to carry the vote for the new government. Within those numbers, we, we sort of knew, you know, who was going to be voting uh, which way. Obviously, the FPM largely voted in favor of granting confidence. Hezbollah and the Amal movement, their blocks both fully supported the government. Tayyar Marada also supported it, as well as most of what we, we've called the Sunni six, the consultative gathering, these non-future movement aligned Sunni politicians. The people who voted against, though, of course, the usual suspects, Progressive Socialist Party, the Lebanese forces, the future movement. Can I say, Ben, what matters is, e- even if parties voted against, what matters is that they ensured there was quorum. I mean, yeah, for protesters, the question was not whether you're voting yes or no. We know how each bloc would vote. The question was whether you will stand with protesters and not provide quorum, or you will go in the session and basically allow the government to be formed, because no one had a question about whether the confidence vo- votes were available or not. They knew the numbers, they were get the, they were going to get the confidence 100%. It was just about uh, the quorum being met or not. So future and PSP, especially PSP among his among their constituency, they're blamed uh, now quite heavily for providing quorum uh, because most of their popular constituents are, are against uh, the government. And also, I remember when uh, when I was on the ground the day of the of the session, we were protesting, etc. Uh, I was thinking that it's quite stupid for for like MPs who are against the government to be go- trying to reach Parliament in the first place because there were you know thousands of people down there trying to prevent their convoys from reaching Parliament. So that put them in direct confrontation with the people that they're trying to be on the same side with. Also politically, this wasn't really a very smart move by by these MPs. I think the smartest would have been to just sit on the side. But there's definitely some deal between Berri and these blocks or between the forces of that form the government and uh, PSP and Future about this whole quorum thing to make sure that the government 
is formed. Uh, there, there's a price that is always paid in Lebanese politics, and uh, we don't know what this one is. And to add to that as well, though, if you're Saad Hariri or Samir Shaja or Walid Jumblat, you don't want to be blamed for the failure of a government, right? Mm. And so maybe you don't fully support the government, maybe you want to see the government fail, but the last thing that you want is to be held responsible for that. Let them fail on their own. But anyway, the confidence vote was only possible thanks to like a huge mobilization of security forces that was really, I mean, I think unprecedented since October 17. The kind of, you know, these different regiments and forces that we found from the army that were deployed on the ground to suppress protesters. Usually the army is there to basically kind of form a line between a human chain between riot police and protesters. But this time, no, the army had sticks and and shell and shields and they were there to prevent protesters from blocking roads. And it was not at all like peaceful. We had, I mean, the protest itself was quite peaceful, was quite nonviolent. But this this clashes between protesters and, and security forces led to 400 people being wounded and seven people being detained. And we're talking about a few hours, right, from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. This is the time the whole the whole thing happened within these hours. So that's a lot of people who were wounded. Uh, within a few hours of one day and by 4 p.m security forces had thrown like tear gas all over the area kind of cleared the whole of downtown to make sure that mps can escape after the session without any big trouble and people are intimidated enough to just leave so yeah it was not an easy confidence vote to get and it was definitely a confidence from the parliament seats but not from the streets which, if you want to hear more about the proper use of tear gas, you should listen to our episode a couple of weeks ago with Aya Majzoub of Human Rights Watch. She'll explain why this, you know, the Lebanese uh, security agencies maybe don't have the best training or don't always use tear gas in the appropriate manner according to international law. Oh, and, and can I add just one other thing really quickly? This session was supposed to be two days long, but obviously nobody wanted to fight these battles again with protesters on a second day. So they got everything done on Tuesday. They just sped through it all, had the vote, and it's done. <laughs> it's interesting that they're breaking records, right? Because the, the budget vote was also super fast. Because yeah. there were also protesters outside. But he knows exactly what he's doing. He asked people to cut down their, you know, their speeches and let's just finish it in one day. Who cares what's being said here, you know? It's just a, a whole theatrical <laughs> play, so let's cut down with it. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, we we also, speaking of politics, we also had some fireworks. The, this past week, we had February 14th, which is the anniversary of the assassination of Rafiq Hariri in 2005. So every year, the Future Movement has this big commemoration in downtown. And if you want to know more about Hariri, we did an entire episode on him back episode 35. Take a look at it. At this year's commemoration, Saad Hariri, Rafiq's son, uh, gave a speech and he said, he, d- he just unloaded on primarily Gibran Basile. Assad said that, you know, some people are still trying to blame my father for the economic situation, sort of like implicitly saying, you know, referencing the free patriotic movement and Gibran Basile. He also sort of like made this claim that there were sort of like two presidents in Lebanon now. Whenever he had to deal with Aoun, he also had to deal with Basile, right? So clearly this, th- this deal between Hariri and Aoun that brought both, you know, that brought Hariri into the prime ministry and Aoun into the presidency back in 2016. You know, if we didn't know it before, it's collapsed. It's gone. Yeah, this was the last nail in the coffin of this whole deal. But apart from this, um, from the attacks uh, against Basile, which Basile responded to with a tweet that sounded like 
something you sent to um, your your ex just after breaking up. It was this whole mess of a tweet and no one was understanding anything that had like thousands of, of people interacting with it, trying to decode what Basile was saying as usual. But anyway, apart from this, Saad also said, included quite a sectarian dimension in his, in his rhetoric and the speech. And, you know, the whole purpose of the speech uh, really was to say that I am still here, and he literally used these words like "I'm still here, I'm here to stay, I'm here to for for the like this whole politics thing. I'm not out of it because that's like the big question: Is Hariri just a marginal figure now? Although he has a big block in parliament, but he seems to be not very influential, to say the least, on what happens in the country. And someone else is prime minister while is he's you know in his youth with a quite a big um, uh, parliamentary block and uh, quite good international connections. But, you know, uh, so he, this whole thing was basically just him showing off that, you know, I'm here to stay and, and making this case. And, and at the same time, there, there are two other factors that play into this. Number one is there, there's sort of these, there's sort of the scuttlebutt around town, right, that certain international donors don't want to give money to Lebanon with Saad Hariri in charge, right? They want to replace him with somebody better aligned with their interests. We, we don't know this for sure. Everybody, you know, we're you know, talking about like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, countries like that, you know, obviously they're not going to come out and their ambassador's not going to say anything anti-Hariri, but there's a lot of rumors that they're not entirely happy with him, right? So that's one thing that feeds into it. And the other thing that feeds into it is a rewind back to 2011 when Hariri's government fell uh, that January. What happened? He he left. Hariri ended up leaving and he was gone from the country uh, for a couple of years. Uh, and so in the back of everyone's mind, there's this question, well, his government fell again. Is he going to stick around here or is he going to go back to Paris? And he was saying... I'm sticking around here. No, no matter what anybody thinks, don't. This is not 2011 all over again. And no matter what any international powers think, I am here to stay. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. And what I was trying to say about the sectarian dimension, though, is that it's okay to you know to make this case. Okay, I'm I'm still in politics. Like to just reassure everyone that, especially your supporters, that uh, you're not going anywhere. That's a fine. That's okay. That's totally valid. What is not okay is that his phrasing was the Sunni people are staying and they are one of the you know pillars of this country. So he's trying to what he's trying to do is beyond just saying I am still here. He's saying I am the kind of what he which which he said before I am the father of the Sunnis in Lebanon, Bayi Sunnah or whatever, uh, and the one who cares about them and the one who is basically representing their their power in the political sphere, which is totally against all the rhetoric that has dominated the public discourse in Lebanon after the uprising. Even politicians have been quite ashamed to talk in sectarian terms. Harir kind of was quite okay with that because it seems that it's his only card to mobilize uh, Sunni constituents around him at this point when he's not in government and he's not really in active opposition. We'll see about that. But he doesn't seem to be in such like enthusiastic opposition kind of mode. Uh, and, and also, I think it's important to note here that some stuff happened in the run-up to the ceremony. So if you remember, Martyr Square still has a bunch of tents in it, right? <laughs> There's still a lot of people who are hanging out there, part of the Thaura, all of that stuff. But in the run-up to this big commemoration event, a bunch of Mistotbal supporters, a bunch of Hariri supporters went down there and sort of hassled people broke some tents reportedly, attacked some people as well reportedly. And then they left. It wasn't a very successful tashbih attempt. No, uh, I, I think the demonstrators actually confiscated three motorcycles from the thugs. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I heard. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the first time that Mustabal people trying to show that they have, you know, 
they have the thugs to to go and do these things uh, if needed. Uh, but it wasn't very successful or intimidating. It was more. Um, it w- the bad thing about it is that it fueled a lot of jokes that have a, a kind of sectarian undertone as well, which is something that we always fall into, and we we don't have this public sense of political responsibility to avoid these things. People get too much into the, the this kind of uh, this kind of political satire in a way that might hurt the revolution that they're fighting for. But in any case, uh, this happened and created a line between Mustaqbal supporters and uh, and the revolutionaries in a way that was not clear before, especially that, you know, a lot of people have been concerned that f- the future movement might be trying to ride the wave of the revolution, especially after Hariri refused to be prime minister. And speaking of the ruling elite's attack on the revolutions, <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we had uh, sad news this week as well with leftist economist, economic journalist uh, Mohammed Zbib being assaulted in Hamra Street in Beirut. Just after he was giving a talk with the Secular Club of the American University of Beirut, he was giving this talk about the economy and uh, obviously revealing what the banks and the 1% and the politicians have been doing with the economy. It was on Wednesday night. And just after he left, he was going to his car in the parking lot. Three Three men come from behind and they attack him without saying anything at all so we can't know who sent them uh, but we have that on tape um, uh, Al-Jadid has already put that uh, tape out and the next day th- this caused a lot of uh, outrage because Zbib is not just an, an, any like journalist um, he's very well known he's very well known especially after the revolution started because he's been kind of the one of the main references for economic knowledge that people refer to if you want to know anything, any critical perspective on the economy, just go to Zbib. He was, for background, he was, uh, until recently, uh, the head of Ra's al-Mal, uh, which is Arabic for capital, which is like a little annex to Al-Akhbar newspaper. But he left Al-Akhbar newspaper in protest against the newspaper's stance against the revolution. So the newspaper was not siding with the revolution. Uh, it was kind of siding against it and fueling all of the uh, conspiracy theories about the revolution. So Zbib quit recently from Al-Akhbar. I think the crucial role he's playing is in mobilizing. I mean, the economic knowledge, it's, it's, it's there. Other people do have that. But he was on the street every day for a very long time, speaking to people at street corners, on the sidewalk, during demos, and really getting people on the street, giving, giving them a grip on what's going on with uh, state finances and making them angry. <laughs> And, and and I think that touches on like one of the great thing about about this revolution is that it made someone who is who was previously like if you if you think five months ago Zbib was like this guy that most leftists would know maybe people who follow economic news would know but he was not really like such a big public figure uh, because it was not like economic critical economic knowledge and analysis was not really appreciated now because everyone is so concerned about the economy and that's a great thing because the economy has been politicized so much then the role of people like Zbib has been has have become much more important and uh, valued socially so it will encourage other people to kind of pursue a similar path which in my opinion is one of the great things that can happen like one of the most progressive things is that more and more journalists focus on, you know, providing this kind of economic insight. And, and one of the things he was talking about at this event uh, before he was beaten up was this document that was spread all over. Right. I, I must have gotten it like five different times on like WhatsApp and Telegram and whatever. Uh, it was it was this report from the Banking Control Commission 
that basically said how much money has left the, the Lebanese financial system. Comparing data from end of 2018 and end of 2019. So it included the whole year of 2019. And the top line number there was that about $15.6 billion left the financial system. But then uh, the Banking Control Commission actually broke down from which size accounts this $15.6 billion came from, and about $15.3 billion of it, so basically all of it, of the net transfers were from accounts with a million dollars or more, either in USD or Lebanese pounds. And so that just shows you that it was the rich people taking their money out. That's what happened. In fact, if you if you look at the smaller accounts, you see, especially in foreign currency, USD, people were actually putting more USD into the system. And, and what's fascinating about these numbers is that they, they manifest so clearly how, like this important talking point that is basically that, you know, a lot of money has been smuggled out of the country before the capital controls were imposed on everyone, mainly by rich people. And it's so true when you look at these numbers, like, I mean, it's not smuggled in an illegal way, just transferred or withdrawn. And that's, that's kind of, that, that makes the situation even more unfair because uh, the people who need, who probably needed to transfer or withdraw quite a lot of money before the capital controls started, uh, when, you know, didn't know probably that this was uh, an urgent need and the people with a lot of resources and a lot of knowledge about you know financial system etc had a big advantage but also the uh, the numbers that were part of that document show and confirm the extreme inequality we have it's it's the numbers that we have are about accounts not people uh, probably due to the banking secrecy uh, law but we have 36 accounts that have over 100 million dollars in Lebanon and we have 1.7 million who have less than $3,300 that's a big chunk of the population basically owning very minimal uh, amounts of money in their banks and in, the, in the bank accounts uh, while very few people owning a lot of, a lot of money just really the number of millionaires that we we have uh, has been estimated to be around 6000 people now we have 25000 accounts with one with over 1 million dollars and the number we had one 25000 accounts at the beginning of 2019 by the end of it we had like 3000 less so uh, a lot of millionaires basically took their money out of the country or a lot of millionaires multimillionaires closed some of their millionaire accounts uh, and uh, took the money somewhere else well, they have to create jobs elsewhere. Oh, yeah, definitely. In Switzerland and Luxembourg and stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in getting into the what I was talking about before, about sort of the financial and political merging together, we, we had some other stuff happening this past week. Uh, there was a series of meetings by politicians on Thursday. We had like two meetings up in Babda and another one back in Beirut at the Grand Sarai, basically to talk about the, the, the biggest thing was the financial crisis. First off, they before the cabinet session up in Babda, they had a like financial meeting with all the bigwigs. You know, uh, Rad Saleme was there, uh, the president was there, Berri was there, the ABL chief was there, the Association of Banks uh, head was there, and and some other people. The finance minister, obviously, weirdly, the defense minister was there, which everybody, I mean, that that caught a lot of, of attention. So they they met to discuss the Yerban repayments, which is something that we are going to be talking about a lot more in a couple of minutes. 
and and at the end of it, um, Ghazi Wazni said that you know the finance minister, the new finance minister, said that they were still undecided, and that there were several scenarios that they were examining. And uh, he said that on capital controls, the government will be issuing a decision soon to organize the capital controls and end the, the you know the margin of arbitrary treatment that the banks have now to deal with customers. But there is clearly a lot of confusion about what to do with the, with the payment of the euro bonds that are maturing next month. So this was the kind of the, the theme that went across all of the meetings. So the first meeting was chaired by Aoun. It was a financial meeting. Then we had the first cabinet meeting since the cabinet gained confidence. And in this meeting, uh, the, a ministerial committee that would also include people from outside of the government was created to basically put not only economic policies like what McKinsey did in the report before, and we have an episode about that, and I will stop referring to previous episodes now, and uh, but also <laughs> like things like monetary policies and financial policies, which were not really discussed in, in reports like McKinsey's. It was not only, it's not like a general thing about the economy. It's like basically what to do right now in all of these different spheres. And the most important part was the $1.2 billion that are maturing in, in March, the euro bonds that are maturing in March. And as a result of this meeting, the cabinet officially requested support from the International Monetary Fund, basically to help figure out what policies are needed and most importantly more, most importantly the the eurobonds payment issue and um this was confirmed by an IMF spokesperson later on twitter right who who was at pains to to make two points number one being that hey lebanon we got your back you know any assistance you need we're we're happy to support you but decisions are all on you we are taking no responsibility for this stuff you guys are the sovereign you have to decide don't put it on us exactly exactly it's almost like they know they're going to get they're about to be blamed for some stuff but anyway this this the question that is basically the most important to answer now is what do we do next month do we pay the euro bonds maturing in march or we don't last week we had dan azzi on this podcast the now very famous financial voice who has been making the argument that we should not be defaulting on the foreign euro bonds so basically he's saying that uh, the euro bonds that are maturing we should think about them as two different categories uh, local like owned by local banks basically local commercial banks and those owned by international actors and we should only pay the ones that are owned by foreign actors so that we don't default you know towards these fo- foreign people but we should not pay the internal debt and do a haircut and deal with the internal debt through a haircut among other things but mostly a haircut that targets the one percent and cancels a major part most of the debt that is owed to local banks in dollars but at the same time like maybe the intentions are the same but the arguments have been there has been a quite a heated debate between uh, this argument that Dan is presenting and most people who are, you know, on the left or on the progressive side of things or part of the revolution or activist groups, etc., who have been saying, no, we don't want to pay any euro bonds. We want to reschedule the debt and like figure out a plan now to reschedule the debt rather than wait till we pay this, uh, this, these euro bonds and then wait till the next ones, etc. That there is no reason to wait more and more. And there was a protest actually. There's, there are weekly protests happening. We're not covering them because they're happening every week. And so it's quite, you know, repetitive. But this, uh, like last Saturday, the protest had this big banner saying no to the payment of euro bonds. And then a sentence meaning like we will not fund your corruption or your bad policies or whatever. And Joanne, you've been one of the people who have been saying this, who have been carrying this opinion that we should 
not, we should default. We should not be paying uh, the eurobonds next month. So tell us why you think that. Right. One thing I want to point out, Nizar, on what you said, whether you are left-leaning or right-leaning in politics does not dictate in any way whether you are for or against debt restructuring. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, you can be hardcore capitalist, free market proponent and still have every reason to believe that we should restructure the entire debt, externally held and internally held. Right. They knew the risks. They knew what they were getting into. So from a very capitalistic perspective, uh, they should yeah. have known. Yeah. Right? Just just saying. It's, it's not about whether you're socialist-leaning or capitalist-leaning. And also p- people with the same politics can disagree on the technicalities mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, you're totally right. It's not really a left-right debate. Uh, it's basically what makes sense. And you would present the counter argument. So I, I'll just like give an idea of what we are, the arguments were. And um, listeners can go back to the previous episode with Dan Azzi and, you know, oh, I referred again to a previous episode. Anyway, so <laughs> so they're all there. Like Shameless. Dan, <laughs> Dan Azzi elaborates on them in a nice way. But uh, basically what he was saying is, why would we default if the foreign debt, like if the debt owned by foreign actors is small in size? So he, he was making the analogy or the metaphor that asking whether if Lebanon's debt was 10 billion dollars would it be a problem and it wouldn't really be a problem so let's just think about the foreign debt as the only debt we have and deal with the internal debt separately and you know just keep paying the foreign debt and one of the main like the second line of argument and one of the main uh, points is that defaulting on foreign debt now would hurt our capacity to to borrow more money in the future which we will most definitely need according to this argument and the third talking point is that we won't really be able to fight the legal battles with these you know international monsters who basically do this for a living they try to get as much as possible from these deals so is the Lebanese government competent enough to go and sit with them and you know fight these legal battles so these are the arguments that can that Dan, Dan presented in the previous episode and the, the, the only arguments I've heard that are you know the only serious arguments I've heard against defaulting on the foreign debt so what do you have to say about these arguments? So first point, the f- foreign debt being relatively small. It's relatively small to our total debt, but it's not small relative to the amount of foreign reserves we have left at the central bank. The idea of paying the external debt for this year and refinancing later when we have the house in order could have made sense if we had a bit more to go in the central bank in terms of foreign reserves, i.e. And, if- and right now that's about $30 billion, right? According to BDO. So as it stands, we have $30 billion. That's if we take Riyadh Salemi's word for it, because the central bank hasn't published in its PNL in years, although it's legally bound to inform the finance ministry of the f- about the figures, uh, which the central bank hasn't done. So we have to take Riyadh Salemi's word for it. Uh, Riyadh Salemi is still saying today that the lira is A-OK and that there is no haircut or forced conversion on people's deposits at banks and that he would be firmly against any of these things in the future, whereas we know these things are happening every single day. Right. And, and a lot of smart people think that that 30 billion number like really is uh, in real useful terms, something more like what, eight to 12 billion? Is that I don't want to give a figure just because I, you know, I, I don't want someone to. Sort of I, I've get- heard I've heard that number considerably less than what he says there is. 
Right. So the, some of this money, some people will say, is money that needs to stay there be because it, it has something to do with local banks' relations with their correspondent banks abroad. Or, but even you know, without getting into any of this, let's just say that we don't have the data yet. And so we're working with a huge margin of error, which is why we should not cut it very close. And, and we're talking about something on the order of $3.3 billion to be paid just over the next few months, right? And so when you put that in the grand scheme of things, if we only have, let's say, $8 billion in usable reserves, $3.3 billion is a massive chunk of that. Right. On average, between the three maturities coming up, at least 40% is owned abroad as of today. Uh, that's a, mit a bit more than $1 billion. Next year, assuming ownership abroad stays at 35%. That's another uh, a bit more than $3 billion that we owe abroad. And then there's also we owe dollar interest on outstanding dollar debt. But then we also have to take into consideration that we need those foreign reserves for basic imports. We need about $5 billion for fuel. We need about a billion dollar for flour. We need about a billion dollar for medical supplies. And that's annually. And so all in all, I would say we have a lifeline for, for the next two years. That's the time we have to put our house in order. And remember, we would also have to, because we're going to be slashing our internal debt, so we would also need to recapitalize and restructure our entire banking sector. And the economy cannot pick up before that. I don't think we can refinance before that's done. So basically, we don't trust the numbers because there's no transparency on behalf of the central bank. But even if we trust the numbers, these numbers are not enough to cover our basic needs and pay the debt at the same time. So it doesn't make sense. What you're saying, as I understand it, is that it doesn't make sense to keep paying now if we know we're going to have to stop paying soon, right? Absolutely. And then there is a practical issue with treating external, externally held debt differently from internally held debt. In practice, we know that local banks are selling their eurobonds abroad all the time. And if it becomes policy to pay foreign bondholders, but not local ones, watch the percentage of foreign ownership soar. Selling abroad allows Lebanese banks to cash in on the market value of the bond today. And more importantly, they can ask to be paid those dollars abroad. I mean, certainly, though, if some rule came down about this, then, I mean, it would be illegal for, like, Bank Audi to sell its uh, eurobonds, right? Well... That's a point, but then there's a growing gray area it, it, that makes it hard to determine whether a bond is legally held abroad or held lo locally. We've heard about swaps with Goldman Sachs, whereby the latter swaps a eurobond against its market value with a local bank. So the local bank gives Goldman Sachs the bond, and the bo uh, Goldman Sachs gives the local bank the market value of the bond. Goldman Sachs gets paid the face value of the bond abroad, uh, because that's, this is now externally held debt. But then they reverse swap, and so Goldman Sachs gives the face value of the bond back to the local bank in the local bank's account abroad, and the local bank returns the market value of the bond to Goldman Sachs, all, all that at a fee to Goldman Sachs. In those sexy shenanigans, what is this debt? Is this externally held debt or is this internally held debt? Just right. to say there's all these practical problems with treating, treating them differently.
I'm just going to explain that without the face and market value jargon because that might be a bit confusing. So what you're saying is any bank that owns Eurobonds might be suspecting that the state might not ba pay back uh, these loans. So they have an interest in selling them to a foreign actor if the state is committed to paying for foreign actors. So they would sell it for, to a foreign actor and then just get the money back after a while. So basically just to make sure that they get their money back, they put it in the hands of a foreign um, actor. And then the moment the money is paid by the Lebanese state in full, they get their money back. And for that, the Goldman, Goldman Sachs or whoever is doing this operation would get a certain, probably a sizable commission for such a big operation. And we're talking here about hundreds of millions of dollars that the banks have sold in the past few months. So that's that. these are not like minor operations at all. They are really, really big. Or if a bank gets wind that something is coming down in cabinet or parliament, something like that, they could just, instead of resorting to one of these uh, complicated financial products, they could just outright sell the eurobonds, right, before it becomes illegal to do so. Absolutely. Um, the second point was that defaulting would hurt our capacity to borrow more in the future. This, this kind of cost to restructuring our external debt alongside our internal debt is extremely inflated in public discourse today. The cost at which the eurobonds are trading in global markets today and the cost at which the credit default swap on Lebanese debt is trading today reflect a clear expectation of default. And there have been outright statements by foreign bondholders to the effect that they are ready to negotiate. Like everyone has the expectation that we're going into a negotiation sometime soon. Let's just say that it's a, it would be a very reasonable expectation to have okay. that we're not going to pay on our debt. The bell is already rung. The right. question is just one of timing now. Absolutely. And also, you know, we're not talking about a million people out there who are going to be uh, who are going to lose out because we're not paying on our externally held debt. Some 40% of the upcoming uh, maturity, the, the one maturing in March, for instance, is owned by two investment banks abroad. If we presume that the Lebanese banks are still holding at least 40% of that bond issue, euro bond issue, that's all the concentration you need to be able to negotiate. And also that, so that impinges on another thing that people bring up when they're saying, no, we should pay we should make good on our externally held debt. People mentioned the fact that Lebanon's eurobonds don't include an enhanced CAC. So this is not to defend the person the, who didn't put in that provision. <laughs> but just saying the situation is not as dire because we have older, less functional, less sexy collective action clauses. So we're not completely without them like Argentina. We don't have to have the agreement of every single bondholder out there to restructure. Lebanon's eurobonds require 75% of holders' consent for any amendment of the terms, but on a series-by-series series basis. So an enhanced CAC would say 75% of holders of Lebanese debt in general have to agree, whereas what we have now is like for every issue, for the issue maturing in March 2020, and then for the issue maturing in April 2020, we need to have the consent of 75% of the bondholders of that particular issue. So that makes it harder, it's more protracted, it takes, that's more legal work, but it's not impossible. And it's not like the situation in Argentina, whereby one little fund can ruin this, you know, can ruin the whole there's no veto power for one right. um, owner of, of debt. But, but I mean, e even though it, it's not an insurmountable task, that still introduces costs that are going to have to be borne. We're talking about we've got three principal repayments uh, between now and June. So we're, having, we're talking three separate negotiations 
in the span of like four months. That sounds like just a lot, a lot to spin up for a relatively weak state going up against, you know, the titans of capitalism, basically, you know, who are ready to do this. You know, they've got the personnel in place. Right. Listen, whenever we resort to international organizations or sexy multinationals, whether it's the IMF or McKinsey, the person they end up sending is Lebanese. The expertise is not beyond our reach. Our successive governments have not been resorting to this expertise because they probably have not been interested in running this country. They've been all about filling their pockets, but things shouldn't continue the same way if we're calling it a revolution. And I just want to say that the expertise is there. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, though, we have all the technical means to, you know, build a great electricity network, but it just hasn't gotten done. So so basically, this is like there has to be a political change in order for us, like very, very quickly in order for us to meet this challenge. Though Restructuring the debt presumes deep and radical political change. You can restructure the debt and borrow again in international markets and locally if you put your house in order. And when we say putting our house in order, we're talking about real political change, real and deep political change in the country. And and obviously putting the like the state finances on a more sustainable footing, for instance. Absolutely. And And fixing the financial system, right? (laughs) The, 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 The sector. Yeah. So one more thing I wanted to mention about the enhanced CAC. During the financial crisis of 2011-2012, the Greek government imposed, with the support of the IMF and the ECB, a retroactive CAC with a threshold of 75%. So their bonds didn't include that provision, but they went and imposed it retroactively on contracts that had been signed. If we do that, what do we gain from it? Well, in Greece's case, it made it easier for the government to negotiate the restructuring, right? They just said, you don't have a choice in this. It doesn't matter what the contract says. We are retroactively putting this new clause in that gives us more power. Is it? Do I I understand that right? CAC stands for Collective Action Clause. This is a clause in the Eurobond Agreement, which says that you don't have to have the consent of every single bondholder to change the terms of the contract, which you need to do if you're restructuring the public debt. A Collective Action Clause might say, for example, that all you need is the consent of 75% of the bondholders and that, you know, and then the terms of the new contract are binding on the other 25%. And so that helps us, makes it more efficient to negotiate because then, you know, if you have, if for, local banks hold 40% of the issue and then two major investment banks abroad hold another 40% of the issue, that's all, you know, you need the agreement of these few people, and then the other 20% can't um, push against that. I should also mention that the talk about foreign courts seizing our gold reserves, our central bank reserves abroad, uh, or Middle East Airlines planes is not very precise because all these assets are owned by our central bank. But when the sovereign defaults, it's the sovereign's assets that are at risk. It's not the central bank's assets that are at risk. These are two separate legal entities. But certainly that could be challenged in court. Well, there are experts who are affirming we should not be worried about that. An an example was given a few years ago when a Middle East Airlines plane was uh, seized abroad. But the issue back then was with Middle East Airlines itself. Not the state. And finally, the argument goes defaulting will hurt our capacity to borrow in the future. Um, I don't know how anyone can say that after we've seen Argentina, Ukraine, and many other examples. Ukraine defaulted, restructured, and now it's the sexiest destination for emerging markets' sovereign debt. 
So basically, now that we've constru- deconstructed like the arguments that are against defaulting um, on the foreign debt, and you you gave the counter arguments for them uh, beyond this defaulting versus not defaulting uh, debate. Do you agree with, for example, what Dan was mentioning on the previous episode about the need for a haircut on the one percent to um, to tackle the internal debt, or how do you think we should? Because that's only one part of the debt that we're talking about when we're talking about the foreign debt. It's a it's a minor part compared to the huge debt we owe to the to the local to the commercial banks basically here uh, in dollars and in lira so how do we go about that like just to wrap up this episode with something like that goes beyond the defaulting um, debate absolutely so there's the there's more widespread agreement that we should definitely restructure our internal debt and the figures that have been thrown out there is people have mentioned slashing 70% of the principal not mentioning interest now that's going to have costs. The banks are going to require capitalization because they are the local banks are the parties that hold uh, these bonds, which we're not going to repay. Now to recapitalize the banks, we're going to you know uh, where's that money going to come from? It's going to come from bank owners, from shareholders, preferred shareholders. Ultimately, there might be capital from abroad interested in recapitalizing our banks if the present owners are not interested in uh, recapitalizing and staying in the business. Ultimately, we're going to get to deposits. So Dan is absolutely right that there is no formula today which says that we can save all the deposits. And so the question is, who bears the brunt? Which deposits are we going to touch? Wait, so a haircut, it's done. It's a done deal. Well, there are arguments out there. There are different viewpoints out there. Some people argue for a bail-in, which is basically rather than just, you know, one-time tax on large depositors, it would be uh, sort of taking away their money, their deposits, but then giving them equity instead. Um, There are different versions of this viewpoint. Some people say you can give them equity in the banks for their dollar deposits. Other people say you can give them equity in... In the, in the public sector, public corporations. Uh, MEA, Casino du Liban. Electricity company, communications. Uh, and some people suggest creating a fund in which they would have equity, which would be supplemented with capital injections from the Lebanese diaspora, which would turn into a fund for uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. My issue with, with this approach is that it is ultimately compensating the large depositors with public funds because th- that equity you give to the large depositors could have been publicly held so let's imagine creating this fund that would su- support small and medium-sized enterprises you can say to depositors okay we're not going to be able to give you your dollars here's equity in this fund and 10 years down the line they can sell this equity and they'll get their money back so to speak but if on the other hand the government taxes these depositors and uses the pro- the proceeds of this tax to create this fund 10 years down the line the state can sell its equity in this fund and that would be public revenue so we're basically going back to the old formula of subsidizing rich people with public funds so and, and you think like if you know if when the haircut happens it should happen but only on large depositors. Absolutely. Only on large depositors. We're talking with people with more than a million dollars in the bank. And even then, it would be an incremental tax. So people with $2 million in the bank would not pay the same thing as people with more than $100 million in the bank. And the numbers that people are talking about 
we could probably make good by only touching the interest that these accounts have accrued over the years, which is extremely excessive by any standards. Um, so it wouldn't even hurt their principle. Which is what Dan was, was saying the other, the, uh, in the previous episode. And a lot of people are saying the same thing. Like if we just calculate how much interest has been accumulated and we remove it from the account, we tax the account accordingly, we can make it happen. And there's no argument that, you know, you're taking people's money because this is your money today that you own, that you got on very, very high risk. Um, and you prefer to do that instead of, you know, investing it somewhere or putting it in a more in a safer place. So you expect to pay a fine for this uh, very high risk investment. Uh, it's just about who pays it, as you're saying. It's just about and with, with the numbers that we were talking about earlier, with a huge inequality and how much money uh, people have in their accounts, it only makes sense that you fund it from the richest, not only because it's fair, but also because if you make people poorer by taking their money from the bank accounts and from their savings, then you will have to fund them in other ways. Like just fiscally, even if you're like a right-wing economist, you should look at this and say, the state should not be accumulating, creating expenses for you know next year and the year after by making people poorer and taking from their bank accounts today. And the money that we have in the largest accounts are enough to fund what we need. So we don't need to touch beyond the 1% or, you know, at least the top tier of, of account holders. Absolutely. Can I can I ask like a larger question, though? One of the big problems is that there is so little trust in the financial system right now. It seems, from my view, it seems like trust has been destroyed for the next generation, right? Who's going to put their money at the bank unless they have to? In, in the next couple of years, but we really need to reestablish that trust. Is it, is it possible? How do we get there? You can impose a haircut on the largest depositors and restructure your banking system. People will put their money back into that system if you really clean up. And when we say really clean up, I, I don't think that can happen with the current political class. And I, I think this is, this is why it's, it's called a revolution. We're back to the main idea that we the fact that we always face while talking about economic affairs uh, in this podcast or anywhere is that as long as political will does not exist, there's nothing that can restore confidence in the economy and move us you know, beyond the crisis we are facing today. It's really all about political will and political decision making. It's about whose interests are served and, and protected by the politicians, but also who is in power. Uh, mainly so without any kind of regeneration of the political uh, of the ruling elite in Lebanon it's hard to imagine a much better place that we could be in anyway I think that's a good note to end this episode on thank you so much uh, Joanne yeah thanks so much thank you guys we really enjoyed this conversation and um, we will be back uh, with another episode in two weeks Uh, stay tuned and uh, until then I'm Nizar Hassan I'm Benjamin Red I'm Joanne Shakir And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.